Reach Young Adult Ministry sermons online from Tuesday, September 10th, 2019 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled Israel Rejects God as Their King, from 1 Samuel 8-10. through Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter eight. So we're going to continue on our series. I don't know what happened to our computer; it turned off. Hey, there it goes. Um, so we're going to continue our series uh, in First Samuel. On uh, so just a little context. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've we've looked at this. So we started out looking at who Samuel was, and uh, he was born to his, to his mother Hannah, who was barren before she conceived him, and uh, she dedicated him to the service of the Lord before, um, before he was born. And so she turned him over, and he took a Nazarite vow, and so he uh, was, picture in your mind, a dude with long hair, wild man. Um, but for, for Samuel, it was black and white, justice, there's right and there is wrong. There's what God said and there is what God commanded not to do. And so he is a very hard man, not because he is judgmental, uh, because he's unfair, but because he has seen firsthand what it looks like when people don't actually chase Jesus. And so uh, for Samuel, he comes up under the tutelage of Eli, the prophet Eli, or the priest Eli, let me, let me get that right. So remember, Eli had uh, two sons, Phineas and, um, I can't remember his last name. He had two sons, Phineas and Ferb. Uh, no, that is not correct. Not correct at all. It is not Phineas and Ferb. Um, here we go, Phineas and what is what is the matter with me? I can't read here. We're going to move on because I can't find it. So he, um, anyway, long story short, uh, God tells Samuel that uh, God sends a prophet to Eli and he basically says, God's going to remove your family from the face of the earth because you've been a bad steward of my, of my name. And so... Uh, Samuel, when he's a little boy, he's got the whole thing where he goes, he goes to bed, he hears somebody say his name, he gets up and runs to Eli, and Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Do this three times, and then finally Eli realizes that God's speaking to his protege, this little seven-ish-year-old kid. And so I can just imagine Eli saying, okay, Sammy, what did God tell you last night? And Samuel says, basically everything that God said is going to happen to you is going to happen. You're going to die. Your family's going to be wiped off the face of the earth because you are a bad steward of God's name. And so that sets the tone for Samuel's life. For him, it is to obey is better than sacrifice. And, you, and we'll see this through the story of Samuel. So we started out by seeing uh, Samuel's roots, where he comes from. And uh, then as we moved through 1 Samuel, we began to see how the people... Uh, began to think of God as a good luck charm. And so they took the ark into battle without God's blessing. They lost the ark to the Philistines. The Philistines then started to suffer because God sent plagues and caused the bubonic plague to break out and all kinds of nasty stuff. And so they gave the ark back to the Israelites. So they finally make themselves right with God. And um, they, they start to follow Samuel 
legitimately, and they have victory over the Philistines. So starting this, starting tonight, we're going to look at, um, so the people of Israel, they uh, are, they've been following God for a while, and they get tired of it. So they begin to see echoes of their past. Samuel has two sons, and it's about time for Samuel to pass uh, his leadership onto his sons. And unfortunately, it's the same thing that happened with Eli, where he's got two sons who have grown up under, under him. That We know that they've grown up under good, godly counsel and wisdom, and yet they have rejected God's stewardship. And so what's happened is that the people, remembering what happened to Eli and his sons, they tell Samuel, we don't want your sons to lead us. Excuse me. And so what they do is they come to Samuel and say, listen, we're tired of chasing this this God. Instead, what we want is we want a king like everybody else. We want a leader that we can actually see, a leader that we can touch, a leader that we can serve and not have to worry about whether or not he's real. And so Samuel pleads with them and he says, please don't do this. Don't do this. You have freedom under the Lord. But they said, no, 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 we we want to be like everybody else. And so the Lord starts this process, and the Lord tells Samuel, he says, listen, give them what they want, because they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me, because I've been their king for generations. And so Samuel, Samuel says, okay, this is what the Lord wants. And so the Lord picks out, handpicks out a king for them, <clears throat> and uh, they begin the process of beginning to look like all the other nations. And so tonight we're going to look at that process, what it looked like when God chose their king. So the first thing I want you to look at, so the Israelites, they were chasing what the world would, would call security. Okay, so security, worldly security, I want you to see leads to bondage. This is the first thing I want you to write down if you're taking notes. Worldly security leads to bondage. <clears throat> so in, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 22, uh, the people, including his sons, reject Samuel's way of life and they demand a king, right? So let's look at this. So in 1 Samuel 8, we're going to read verses 4 through 9. It says this. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old. It's kind of offensive, but okay. Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore appoint a king to judge us the same way all the other nations have. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, and he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing, that you, same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt to the, until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Samuel goes to the Lord and he says, look, this is not right. Because Samuel sees, he's seen the benefit of, of chasing things that are not truly uh, healthy for us. So he pleads with the people, don't do this. This is not right. But God says, listen, Sam, you're, you're experiencing what I've been experiencing since I brought him out of Egypt. Where they come, they're faithful for a little while, then they wander away. Then they're faithful for a little while, then they, then they wander away. This is what it looks like when you have people who are chasing after what they perceive is their security. But see, here's the thing. How many times has this happened to us where we chase we chase divine appointments in our life for things that we view as security. So 
for them, they were more pri- their, their priority was to look like everybody else. I can tell you from, from my perspective, I do this all the time. I catch myself on social media thinking, you know what, I'm going to post this kind of content because I know I'm going to get more engagement. Or I'm going to do these types of activities because people will think I'm cooler. I'm going to do these things because whatever. We, ch- we chase this idea of if I could just fit in, maybe I could fill this hole that's inside of me. And we think that that's where true satisfaction comes from. But what Samuel knows and what he tries to tell the people is the truth that, that we are missing something. We're missing something pivotal. And the hard thing is that the, the, the world offers a kind of security that's fake. Israel asked for a physical king because they thought it would be easier to, than following Jehovah, the king, the king God. Look at this <clears throat> in uh, 1 Samuel 8. Read verses 11 through 18. It says this. It says, He said, there are, there are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to, to his use in his chariots, on his horses or running in front of his chariots. Listen, he's talking about, he's, he's telling the people, listen, this is going to be the price of having a king. He continues and he says, uh, Sorry, I lost my place here. There we go. Verse 12. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, and your donkeys, and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. Samuel says, look, see, when we want to look like the world, we have to remember that that lifestyle comes with strings attached, right? So, for instance, here's how this, this plays out. Here's how it played out in my life. Okay, so many of you know my testimony that, that I went through a period of, of life where I uh, abused alcohol and it was, it was destructive to me, right? But part of living a lifestyle that chases sin and denies God's presence in your life is that it comes with ripple effects, right? So for some of us, it could be a, a relationship where you think, oh, you know what? In order to look like the world, in order to look normal, I need to be in a relationship. So I'm going to find someone to be in a relationship with. Forget who that person is. I'm not going to go for quality. I'm just going to go for someone. And so we connect with somebody. And so what happens is that we get bound up with someone in a relationship. But what we don't realize is that that comes with ripple effects. One decision turns into a few weeks of bad decisions, a few months of bad decisions, a few years of bad decisions. Then we realize that we're, we're down the road with the decisions that we've made and we realize that it's hard for us to get out of the decision that we made in the first place. Samuel's saying, look, this is, this is a permanent thing. Consider what you're, what you're giving up. You're giving up your true freedom in, in God. And you're chasing after just the appearance of looking what you think is normal. When we make worldly decisions, we're committing ourselves to the consequences that will last a long time. We fall into this trap with other things. It doesn't just have to be relationships. It can be material possessions or money. For instance, you think, I've got to have this 
this car. I'm not picking on you, Al. I promise. Right? We've got to have this car, or we've got to have this house, or we've got to have this stuff. We've got to have all, this, all these things, right? So what do we do? This happens in America all the time. We think, oh, well, I've got to have these things to have a, to, to have a status symbol. Al got a car because his car got totaled. So he's not prideful at all. He's not prideful at all. But let's, let's be honest. We make, these, we make commitments because we want to look like the world, right? So this happens to people all the time. So they, go to, they, go, they get out of high school. They think, okay, well, in order for me to be a success, I've got to have a house. I've got to have a good job. I've got to, have, got to go, get the right degree so I can make a lot of money. So what do they do? They go to college. They go based on what they think is the best thing, not what God's told them to do. It could be the most expensive option on the table, but they don't want to pray about it because they don't want God to question their, their wisdom. And so they go to a university that's way above their means. They, they borrow money way beyond their, own way, their, their way to, pa- to pay it back. Then they get out of school and following the same lifestyle that make more choices. Oh, well, now I'm out of school, so now I've got to get a job. Now, I gotta, now I've got a job. Okay, now my student loans are deferred for a little while because I'm going to go to grad school, kind of limp along doing that. I'm going to go ahead and buy this house, which is more house than I can afford. Oh, well, my car just broke down that I've had all through high school and all through college. I've got to get a new car, so I'm going to get a new car. So we start piling on these bad decisions. What ends up happening is it turns into a snowball that turns into a snowman then turns into a boulder. Next thing you know, you're Indiana Jones trying to get out of the cave and not get crushed, right? This is the nature of making bad decisions just, just because we want to look like the world. Think about how devastating that is to the Lord when he says, I have so much good for you. I have so many great things for you, but you keep getting in your own way. You keep trading freedom in me for the appearance of looking like what the garbage that everybody else has. Trust me. Psalm 37, 3 and 4 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, the truth is that we don't trust God because we truly don't know God. If we're honest with ourselves, If the people in this story were honest with themselves, they would be able to say, you know what, I don't trust this God of yours, Samuel, because I haven't spent any time or energy trying to know him. Because God's word says that if we truly know him, we will not be afraid. We will have confidence in his purposes. He will give us the desires of our heart because we will have his desires. Because apart from him, what we want is selfish and self-destructive. The second thing I want you to see is that even in rebellion, though, the Lord directs our steps. Here's the cool thing about this story. I didn't notice this until I started digging into this earlier uh, a few weeks ago. So the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, I want, we want a king. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. But the whole time that this unfolds, God is literally directing every single minute detail. It's crazy. So, so God says, you know what, I'm going to give, he tells Samuel, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to tell you who it is. So since we have a lot of text to cover, I'm going to summarize this in chapter 9, and then we're going to read a little bit. So in chapter 9, you see that you, you, you're introduced to the character of Saul, the man Saul. He's the son of a man named Kish. He's a Benjamite, so he's from the, the tribe of Benjamin, the youngest tribe of all the tribes of Israel which is the smallest, the least of the tribes. 
Um, he's tall and he's handsome. He's, he looks like someone who could be a king. Um, so his dad loses, uh, loses some livestock. He loses three donkeys. And so Saul and his, and, his maid, and his manservant go to find these donkeys. So out there they're wandering around. And finally they realize Saul turns to his buddy and he goes, Listen, we've been out here a long time. And if we sit here any longer, the dad's going to start worrying about us. Forget the donkeys. And so his servant says, hey, I heard that there's, a, that there's a man of God in this city over here, just right next to where we are. We can go see him and talk to him. And maybe he can help us out and give us a, a prophetic word about where the donkeys are. So Saul's like, okay, cool. So they go to the city. And what they didn't know, though, is that the man of God that was in that city was Samuel. And the day before, God told Samuel, he said, hey, that king that I told you about, I'm going to send you a man tomorrow. So keep your eyes open. So Saul and his manservant come into the city, and they come across Samuel. And immediately Samuel knows who it is. And so what happens is Samuel invites Saul to a feast that night. He says, hey, why don't you come with me to this feast, and I'm going to give you, I'm, I want to honor you. And so they're at the feast, and Samuel puts him at a very prominent place at the table. He gives him meat like he not just like he gives him a steak like he gives him like at that time a, one of the the when you were at a feast the food that you received was an indication of your status okay so smaller people in the in society would get more menial food like soups or things like that well Saul he gets literally the ham bone of not a ham bone because he's a Jew obviously but he gets he gets the hip bone with all with a thigh of the lamb, right? He gets the lamb bone. And so he gets literally the choicest piece of meat at this feast. And Saul's thinking, okay, this is kind of weird. And so Samuel pulls him aside and he says, listen, God's got his hand on you. And Saul goes, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. You got me mistaken with somebody else. This is not, this is not me. I'm not supposed to be anybody important. I'm just Saul. Here's the thing that we realize about Saul in the early stages of, of our introduction to him is that he's very self-conscious. He is very self-conscious. He does not have a very high self-esteem. And so he tells Samuel, no, you've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong guy. And so what happens is Samuel says, you know what, why don't you just go to bed, sleep on it, I'll see you in the morning. And I want to see you off before you leave. And so one of the things that Samuel tells Saul is he says, all of Israel has been waiting for you. Now, you can imagine Saul, he's like, I just met this guy, and he just said that the entire nation is waiting for me to step forward. This is a little terrifying. And so the next morning they wake up, and after the feast, and Samuel's walking, walking Saul down to the city gate to send him off. And before he gets to the city gate, he sends the manservant ahead. He says, why don't you go ahead? I need to talk to your master. And as soon as he sends him ahead, he pulls Saul off to a solitary place, and he, and he says, listen, God's got his hand on you. He wants to make you the king. And so there, Saul gets anointed as king of Israel. But no one knows except for Samuel and Saul. So check this out. In 1 Samuel 9, verse 27. We'll start in verse 26. It says, They got up early, just before dawn. Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, and I'll send you on your way. Saul got up, and he and, his, he and Samuel went outside. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead, ahead of us, but you stay for a while, and I'll reveal the word of the Lord to you. So the servant went on. Samuel took a, the flask of oil and poured it out on Saul's head. He kissed him and said, Hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler 
over his inheritance. This is a huge moment for Saul. This is a huge moment for Israel. This is a huge moment for us. Because think about this. Even though Israel rejected God, he still handpicked their king. This shows that even when we reject him, he will orchestrate our steps. So, this is a key biblical concept. That you can never be rebellious enough. You can never run away far enough. You can never run away fast enough. You can never rebel big enough for God to not have his hand on your life. There have been times for me that I have, the only evidence that I had of God's presence in my life was the presence of conviction. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but as far as other evidence of God's presence in my life, there was none to speak of. In the book of Proverbs, it says to not despise the chastening of the Lord, to not despise God's conviction because who the Lord loves, he convicts. There have been times in my life where conviction was the only thing that I, that I could hold on to knowing that God still had his eye on me. This is evidence in this story right here, all along the way that God is meticulously putting this together. He chose Saul on purpose. See, when God makes a promise to somebody like he did to the people of Israel, he means it, whether they keep their side of the promise or not. God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. And he said, from your seed, I will make you a great nation. And through you, I will redeem all of mankind. So Abraham was even, even he had low self-esteem. And he was unsure of things that God had him do. So much so that he embarrassed himself. There's no reason why Abraham should be the man that he is. But it says that because he obeyed God, he was called a friend of God. See, for us, we've got to remember that no matter how far away we get, God has always got his hand on us, no matter what. And it could be that you have made those same decisions. It could be that you're in this spot right now. It could be that you've made some decisions that you're dealing with the consequences of, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, how in the world am I going to come back from this? What if somebody finds out about this? What if, what if my parents find out, or what if my church finds out, or what if my community finds out? I'm going to be, I'm going to be destroyed. But have confidence in this, that God always has his hand on you. You are not that powerful. You're not. God can do incredible things in you, even when you're in your most rebellious position. He always follows through on his covenants, always. That means that when he says that he is is faithful and steadfast and his mercies are new every morning, that is true on the mornings that you're rebellious and that is true on the mornings that you're not. How you feel and decisions that you're making does not change whether or not this is true. That's one of the most amazing things about it. God makes sure that all through his process that he puts together every detail of our lives, even in our rebellion. Saul's selection as king is a reflection of God's nature. When God says he will never leave you or forsake you, he means it. When he says that he didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, he meant it. This core part of his nature is how we know that no matter how far we run away from him, his covenant of forgiveness stands secure. You will never be able to run far enough away from God to where he does not have 
and ability to save you. Never, 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 never. That's not just my opinion. That's not just my doctrine. That's what the Bible says. The third thing I want you to see is that God always oversees his children. So Saul is an obscure person in the whole nation of Israel. In chapter 10, it begins to unfold how, he, uh, how God puts him on display. So after his anointing, Samuel sends Saul out of the city of, to Gilgal to meet him there. So, so there's going to be this rally of priests. And so, um, so Samuel sends Saul. He says, listen, along the way, you're going to run into these people in your, in your home country, in the, around the area of Benjamin. And they're going to meet at the city called Gilgal, and there's going to be prophets there, and they're going to have they're going to have instruments, and they're going to be praising, and they're going to be prophesying in my in the Lord's name, and the Lord is going to move on you. And when He moves on you, you are going to prophesy, you are going to sing, you are going to praise the Lord, and the people are going to see that God has done something in you. See, here's the thing: is that even for Saul, even as as bent as this whole situation is, Saul is still, God still interacts with Saul and he gives him a supernatural change of heart. Look at this in, verse, in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 5. This is, um, this is Samuel telling Saul what's going to happen. And he says, after that you will come to Gibeah of God, where where there are Philistines garrisons. When you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high places, prophesying. They will be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. When these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require, because God is with you. Afterward, go ahead Go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you and offer burnt offerings and, sac- and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show, and show you what to do. When Saul turned around to leave Samuel, verse 9, God changed his heart and all the signs came about that day. God doesn't just, when we rebel against him, he doesn't just say, you know what? I'm going to just leave you alone and just let you crash and burn. He doesn't do that. You've got to understand that, that, yes, God is just, and he is merciful. But God's word says that if he could choose between the two, he would choose mercy. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says that God doesn't willingly punish the sons of men. Why? Why? Because when God sees you, He loves you. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to punish you in your in your rebellion. But you know what? We insist that He punish us. We insist that He punishes us because we reject His mercy over and over and over and over again. We choose the hard way. We've got to understand that we're the ones that choose this, not Him. When it comes to punishment, when it comes to difficulty, when it comes to the consequences of sinful behavior. We're the ones that choose that. We're the one that choose the, the stick over the carrot. This is, this is a fundamental part of being a human being. It's like Paul says, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. I'm frustrated. My flesh and my spirit, they war against each other. So Samuel, after God moves on Saul, 
they meet at the city of Mizpah. And in Mizpah, that's when Saul gathers all the people and they go through, go through the whole pomp and circumstance of, of selecting a king, right? So up until this point, it's been on the hush as far as who's, who knows about Saul being the king. And so what Samuel does is he brings all the people together and he says, okay, I want you to separate by tribe, okay, and we're going to pick the, we're going to pick the tribe that God wants the king to come from. That goes through all of them, gets the Benjamin, pull the Benjamites over, and they, they, he goes through, there's clans in the, ben, in the Benjamite uh, tribe, and so they finally get on Saul's clan, and then, and then they get to Saul's clan, and they're like, okay, well, where's the king? And they're like, I don't know. Like, did he miss the email or something? He's not here. And so they, they, they ask, where is the king? Turns out, he's hiding because he's terrified. He's hiding in the supplies. Look at verse 22 in chapter 10. He says, They again inquired of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, There he is hidden among the supplies. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. So what's interesting to me is that God oversees this whole thing. Look, look, at, look at what Samuel now says. He reiterates some of the things that he had talked about before. So he goes through and he reads all of the things that he talked about, how the, the king is going to take your vineyards, and he's going to take your, your fields, and he's going to take your sons, and he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to take all these things. And then so Samuel reads all these things aloud. Verse 25, this is a summation. He says, Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. And brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring, a gift, did not bring him a gift. But Saul said nothing. So after Saul was selected and presented to the people, Samuel pro- proclaimed the, the rights of kingship. That's what we talked about. It's in, it's in chapter 8, verses uh, 11 through 18. That Saul would rule over them, and he would take their freedom. God gave, the, gave Israel a king like they wanted. But Samuel made sure that they understood he was still an authority over, that he was still the authority over the king. He chose him. He could give the throne to another man if he wanted to, but God was the one that was in control. See, even in our rebellion, not only does does chasing security lead to bondage, but God still guides us in our steps. But he oversees the whole process of our rebellion, which blows my mind to think that even the decisions that I make while I'm rejecting him that he still guides me. But here's the thing that that astounds me the most, though, is that in all of this, God never relinquishes authority, ever. So when it says that Samuel took the rights of kingship and he placed them in the tabernacle, it was a symbolic gesture because remember, the, t- the tabernacle is where the Ark of the Covenant is, resides, right? And so what Samuel is doing is he's taking the scroll that says, this is what it means, this is what the king's authority is, and he places it in a holy place, showing that whatever Saul does is under God's authority. 
So no matter where he goes, no matter what he does, he is never away from God, the responsibility to be obedient to God. What we're going to look at next week is that Samuel then turns to the people. And he says, listen, now that you have a king, that doesn't mean that God doesn't matter anymore. See, what we think a lot of times in our, in our uh, worldly perspective is we think that if we, as long as we are doing what we want, we'll just kind of run the score up and then we'll ask for forgiveness later. We assume that God doesn't care anymore. We assume that he's given up lordship of our life in our rebellion. But that's not true. One of the other things that the Bible says is that we're, that we're bought, that we're paid for. Now, you might say, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, for those that are trusted in, in Jesus, yeah, they're, they're bought and paid for. But you know what? That's not really, doesn't really apply every time. The truth is that we, were all, we have always been a slave. Always. Paul talks about this, that you have never been free your whole life. You've never been free. And if you think that you are, you're kidding yourself. The truth is that we are a slave. We're a slave to sin first, and eventually, if we give our life over to Jesus and we relinquish what we think is our own control, we relinquish that to Christ, we become a slave in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul and the other, the other disciples refer to themselves as bondservants or slaves of Christ in all of the letters that they write. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean to us? So we can see how the people of Israel rejected God because they wanted to have the appearance of what they thought was normal. So the question that I have for you tonight is, are you normal? Are you chasing normal? Are you chasing what is godly? Because to chase what is godly is not normal. If you feel comfortable where you are, then you're probably standing a little bit too close to the world. See, here's how you know that God's moving in your life. If you are consistently in situations where you feel like you are totally out of control. This is the truth. Think about the major moments in people's lives in Scripture. And think about whether or not they thought they were in control. Moses standing in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. Moses standing in front of the Red Sea parted. Think about Joshua walking around the city of Jericho with these massive walls and they crumble down. These types of things are foolishness to the world. And so if we have to apply worldly wisdom and a worldly mindset to achieve what we think is what God wants us to do, chances are we're not actually doing what God wants us to do. So I want you to ask yourself that question this week. Am I normal? Am I chasing normal? The decisions that I'm making, am I trying to blend in? Or do I feel comfortable being uncomfortable?
What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory down Come fill your people With revival